Welcome to Trilawyer Talk. I'm Scott Glovsky, and I'm your host for this podcast where we speak with some of the best trial lawyers who are telling great stories from cases that had a profound impact on them. Today, we have another great episode. So let's get going. feel very fortunate to be sitting with Adrian Baca. Adrian is a wonderful criminal defense lawyer in Los Angeles who wins cases that nobody should win. And I know he wins them with skill, creativity, and dedication. Adrian, thanks for being with us. Thank you for the invitation and the kind words, Scott. Adrian, can you share with us the story of a case that had a profound impact on you? The story that had a profound impact on me actually has a catchy headline. Um, It was the subject of an article in Rolling Stone magazine. It's How I Killed My Way Out of Prison. Um, It became a retrial. It came to me, and I realized this case was symbolic in a lot of ways. Wrongful conviction, a man who was out suing the police. Now he was going to go back to prison. So it had a lot of twists and turns. Wow. Please tell us. Well, it was a case I was actually appointed on. He went to trial after he got out of prison for a, con- uh, for a murder he didn't commit. He was looking at the death penalty. He got involved, and they accused him of another shooting. It went to trial. He was charged with mayhem and a gang allegation, and he was looking at life. One of the best attorneys in Los Angeles hung at 9 to 3, and I was covering the court in Compton in Los Angeles, and the judge appointed me. So initially, when um, Mr. Cole met me, very standoffish, you're not going to be my attorney, and I just knew something about this case, that we had a a connection and a karma, and I knew that I was going to go to trial on him, on his case. He didn't know it yet, but I knew it. So how did you know it? Um, I think by just sensing things. Sometimes you have an intuition about... Um, um, destinies um, interchanging and paths crossing with somebody. I just knew. I knew it in the core of my bones. I knew. And I knew that it was going to be a big, giant case because I received boxes and boxes of discovery. So how did you start? I started by accepting my client's um, Reluctance to have me as an attorney, and I told him I was going to be his attorney until I heard otherwise. The court appointed me, and I started working on the case and going through the transcripts of the trial. Then I started meeting with my client a little more, and um, we started establishing a relationship of trust. I introduced him to some of the techniques we use at the Trial Lawyers College, reversing roles, setting scenes, um, being there for him all the time. And understand, this man had been in prison for a murder he didn't commit for 20 years. He was looking at the death penalty. He was out of custody now, and he was potentially looking at five, ten million dollars $10 His co-defendant settled for $8 million. He was, everybody in his life had disappointed him. His family, um, the police who set him up um, in prison, the brutality of prison, he had to kill somebody inside of a prison who was going to kill him. Um, 
it was a horrible condition, the kind that you would imagine in one of the most typical prison movies. It was like that. So it was establishing trust. Um, me being there, me meeting on his terms, and just reinforcing and gaining one piece of trust at a time. And what happened next? What happened next is um, we went to trial quicker than I thought. Um, I started meeting with my client a lot more and doing scene reenactments. It was a shooting case, and I had to understand essentially what we were saying is the victim shot himself, right? Um, that sounds like a plausible defense. <laughs> well, it, it, it was scary. And uh, my feeling was I was the first attorney didn't put his client on the stand. And I know Jerry Spence says typically he doesn't do that, but I always prepare every case like my client is going to take the stand. So we prepared and we prepared. We did scene reenactments in my office. And some of them actually became quite harrowing for me where I realized that um, my client was decompensating a bit um, and was mixing up roles because he had some post-traumatic stress that he didn't um, deal with. And I pulled back. We don't ever want to become a psychodramatist. Well, can you tell us what happened? Well, what happened is we redid the scene, and um, he became so animated that he relived the scene, and I could see it in his eyes, and he started reverting to like he was in prison, and I feared for my safety. And I looked at my desk, and I thought, where are those scissors? I'm going to have to stab him <laughs> to defend myself. Can you go and roll as him at that moment? It he was... Ang I was angry. I'm angry, Baca. I'm angry. Where's my money at? Where's my money at? You motherfucker. Baca, where's my money? Reggie, I'm not your civil attorney. Baca, motherfucker, I got screwed out of that money. I got screwed out of that money, Baca. Where's my money, Baca? He's looking at me. I can see his eyes are... He's in the role. He's not playing the role. He is that person at that time. He's mixing me up with the civil attorney, and he's mad because he feels he's going to be cheated $3 million. He's putting his hands in his, um, in at the front of his pants. He's coming at me. He's looking hard. This is a admitted Hoover gang member, and the Hoover gang is a pretty bad gang. I knew that I had to be very, very careful and very affirming, and I am not your civil attorney. I am not your civil attorney. I am not your civil attorney. What was your soliloquy at that moment? My soliloquy was I was looking for the scissors. This is going to be a bad incident that I took something on that exploded in my face, but at the same time, I understood his pain, and I, I became like an empath, and I took his pain, and I allowed him to... I trusted him, even though it was some mistrust for my safety. I was worried, but I took his pain, um, and I knew that it was something that he had to get over. In hindsight, we should have had a trained psychodramatist. So how does that scene end? It ended with um, him calming down, and meaning his breath was calm, his, um, his manner was calm. I brought in four or five people, um, people who um, work adjacent to me that have helped me. And I said, we're going to do it again. And I think he had gone through the scene enough and, and we had a time crunch that we did it and it was much more, without the 
the violence or the fear, we went through it and it was very powerful. So we had gotten over that, that period of fear. After that, what I did is I run a local working group in Los Angeles. I brought him to the group. We had 20 attorneys, 20 attorneys. We worked on his case. We did scene reenactments. We had him, um, I put him on the stand for direct examination. Reggie Cole, um, not Reggie Cole, but um, uh, Patrick McLean, who's a TLC graduate, helped. Susie Midland helped. A lot of attorneys helped. At the end, he understood. He had been socialized about to be honest and to be vulnerable. And so when it came to the trial, after five weeks, the judge thought I was going to rest. And um, she said, Mr. Bach, are you going to rest? I said, no, Your Honor. I'm waiting for a ruling from the Court of Appeals to keep this evidence out. And she said, call your witness. I said, can we wait till 12 o'clock? Call your witness. I called Reggie Cole to the stand. We did this scene in front of the jury. Um, the judge had trusted me. I was um, upright with her. Um, we fought a bit. But she let me get Reggie off the stand. <laughs> so we got Reggie off the stand and we reenacted it. And he threw me around a bit. And I could look at the jurors and they had a look of horror in their eye and they were fearful for me because he was throwing me around and we were making noise. And I said, Reggie, was it like this? And he goes, no, it was four times as, as violent. And I think by putting him on the stand, it humanized him. And by showing the tussling and the wrestling, the jury could clearly see how the tussling of the gun pointed the barrel of the gun down and hit him in the leg. And um, not you're, saying, you're saying the, the alleged victim or the other person involved. Right. It was our testimony that the victim brought out the gun and that there was a struggle over the gun. They both had their hand over the gun and as they were tussling over the gun, the barrel of the gun pointed down. And at that point, one of them pulled the trigger and that shot the victim in the leg. The interesting part of the case is not every case ends gloriously. It turned out after um, five weeks and five days of deliberation, um, the prosecutor, unbeknownst to me, went behind my back and talked to the prior lawyer and offered him a deal of time served while the jury was deliberating. So at that point, my client had settled his case for wrongful conviction case for, I think, $5 million. And he said, Baca, I'm going to take the plea of time served. So we brought the jury out, and I asked him, what is your um, vote? And it was 11 to 1. And I looked at one guy, and I said, you were the one. It was the foreman who was holding out um, for guilt. So we had 11 jurors, mostly um, one African-American woman whose son had been shot, who I left on. A lot of um, Anglo school teachers from Long Beach who knew nothing about gangs. And uh, afterwards, the most interesting thing I've ever seen, they stayed in the jury box while we talked to them about what was going on and how much they appreciated the case and how much they appreciated Reggie. And um, it was very interesting. And I realized in hindsight that I did leave one juror on who I, I had that same instinct, but I left on. And he was the juror that, that held out. And I think he felt a little bit guilty, and maybe he would have uh, come around 
or maybe it would have been another hung jury. But afterwards, we, the jurors and myself and Reggie met outside of the court. We took selfies together. <laughs> we became Facebook friends. Reggie's become Facebook friends with him, and then Reggie's agreed to go out as part of his plea, no jail time, to go out with the prosecutor and to talk about gangs and gang intervention. And so Reggie's free of the gangs. He can't come back into the neighborhood. And I'm worried about him sometimes that he doesn't do it. But I think he's a, it's, a, it's a heroic story of a man who is going to go back to prison again for life after he got out of prison when he was in there for life and then looking at the death penalty. Wow. What impact did this case have on Adrian Baca? Um, trust. Trust to myself. I didn't sabotage myself. I was sick. I was tired. I knew I had to get in there and fight and give it everything I had. And I wondered if I could. I knew one of the best attorneys in Los Angeles hung it. So for me, it was an affirmation of the trial lawyers college um, techniques that I had practiced and practiced and practiced. And I wondered whether they would pay off. They had been paying off, but this was my ultimate test. And um, it was trusting the, trusting the process, being open, putting a client on the stand, telling the full story, and that the jury could come to the conclusion. Um, one, that he didn't do it. And two, that there was humanity, humanity in him that he was worthy of love. Even though they're school teachers in Long Beach, he was a Hoover gang member that was Calipatri prison, the worst prison in probably um, California. They were more alike than different. So I reached the conclusion that um, people are just, if you allow them to be just, to give them information and not to be scared and to um, sometimes run towards the danger. What do you mean by that? Well, the first attorney didn't put him on the stand. My feeling is that I wasn't there to hang the, the case. I was there to walk him out of there. So I put him on the stand where he admitted he was a gang member, We admitted a manslaughter conviction, where he admitted other um, offenses. And um, my feeling was, as a criminal defense attorney, to not defend the case but to prosecute the case. It's much more powerful. I know that there's a saying at the Trial Lawyers College, if you're defending or if you're explaining, you're losing. If you're defending, you're losing. So it was getting our story out. Wow. What's the hardest part of being a trial lawyer? I'd say to be a a very successful trial lawyer, criminal defense. It takes a lot of effort and resources, and it is taxing on me. I realize I put so much into my cases that I don't have an infinite amount of energy. It depletes my energy. It depletes me. It's life or death struggles. I'm 56 years old today. And I realized that, uh, whew, boy, it takes a lot out of me. So I don't look forward to going to battle. But once I do, I realize that I have to give it everything I have. So it can be taxing. It can be alienating to my family. 
and loved ones because I'm so involved in, in defending people. Adrian, as we sit here on your birthday, and happy birthday. Thanks, God. If the 56-year-old Adrian Baca could talk with the 8-year-old Adrian Baca, what would you tell him? I'd say 8-year-old Adrian Baca was um, lonely, um, playful. I want you to do this in role as you today. I feel like I miss my father because my mother and father are divorced. I have three sisters. Um, my mother loves me. My dad loves me, but he only sees me on the weekends. I'm trying to find myself. I feel a little bit outside of the normal because I'm Mexican living in an Anglo community in a Mexican city of um, El Paso, Texas. I feel like an outsider. <clears throat> and I guess what I would say is that as a 56-year-old Adrian, that I try to protect those people who also feel not part of the larger part of the community, that need help. As you today, talking to you as an eight-year-old, go ahead and tell him what you want to tell him. Um, that being lonely sometimes can be beautiful because you have to go inside you have to, inside of yourself, you have to watch and you can see how people interact. Um, you'll grow out of this, but you'll always be the lonely boy. And so the lonely boy will meet a stronger man. And together, I think that um, you both coexist. Yeah. What would you tell him about what accomplishments he's going to have in his life? At that point, I would have preferred to say, hey, you made it to the major leagues in baseball, right? I didn't imagine I'd be an attorney. I'd say, um, be patient, but uh, you're going to accomplish more than you thought, and uh, life will be more, far more interesting than you ever thought. But part of you is never going to grow up. <laughs> You're still going to be in 56-year-old Adrian and 60-year-old Adrian, and you're a big part of them. So that part of Adrian likes to play, likes to have fun, um, is very serious, but at heart, is it will always be eight years old. I would tell eight-year-old Adrian that you're going to save lives, you're going to help a lot of folks, you're going to change, change people's lives, not just your clients, but their families. You're going to be successful, respected, accomplished, and loved. And as I'm talking to 56-year-old Adrian Baca, sitting across this table from me, I'm going to tell you that you are accomplished. You've changed lives, and you're changing lives. You're saving lives. You're helping people. And it's been my honor to talk to you. I'm glad we sat down, Scott. I didn't know what to expect, but uh, I appreciate knowing you and looking at your eyes. Um, I didn't imagine you'd open me up like this, but uh, it feels good to be trans 
parent with you. So thank you, Scott. Thank you, brother. Thank you for spending the time and sharing your wisdom and great, great story with us. Anytime, Scott. Thank you for joining us today for Trial Lawyer Talk. If you like the show, I'd really appreciate it if you could give us a good review on iTunes, and I'd love to get your feedback. You can reach me at www.scottglovsky.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-G-L-O-V-S-K-Y.com. And I'd love to hear your feedback. You can also check out the book that I published called Fighting Health Insurance Denials, A Primer for Lawyers. That's on Amazon. Uh, I put the book together based on 20 years of suing health insurance companies for denying medical care to people, and it provides a general outline of how to fight health insurance denials. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you in the next episode.